hanging a woman as a witch is nothing new. Women have often been the scapegoats for deaths, plagues, or even mundane misfortunes. Occasionally, they had been guilty of even worse. Mary Bateman was a self-proclaimed fortune teller and, let's be honest, straight-up con woman. Among her notable hoaxes was the infamous Prophet Hen of Leeds. Yes, that's hen, as in chicken. But fraud would turn out to be the least of Mary's sins. Come back with me to the dawn of the 19th century and a woman who would become known as the Yorkshire Witch. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Scalawags, the podcast where I tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. This week, our story takes place between the years 1768 through 1809 in merry old England. This is going to be late Georgian. Mad King George III is on the throne although not yet in the throes of the mysterious illness, and he is performing badly in the American Revolution and then the Napoleonic Wars. Now, we are just pre-Regency. Regency is when they removed three and put number four on the throne in 1811 to rule as his regent due to illness. If you are a Bridgerton fan, that's the Regency era. Uh, That show takes place in Mayfair, London in 1813, I think. So some, um, some notes about the source material I used for Mary Bateman. Uh, There is a Murderpedia page for her. There is also, I used a Mental Floss article and several books. The first is Mary Bateman, Witch and Murderess, published by or written by Sabine Baring Gould in 1900. The more recent one is The Yorkshire Witch, The Life and Trial of Mary Bateman by Summer Stevens, and that was published in 2017. Now, there is another book that both of the others reference and it is called here's the full name the extraordinary life and character of mary bateman the yorkshire witch traced from the earliest thefts of her infancy etc till her execution on the 20th of march 1809 that's yes that's the whole name and it was published by davis and company in 1811 I also used the complete Newgate calendar. The Newgate calendar was a monthly bulletin of executions, which people read for entertainment. And these were later collected and expounded upon and published as chapbooks. Now, who was Mary Bateman? 
Her early years are as murky as her heart, but we know that Mary Bateman Nee Harker was born in North Yorkshire in 1768. She was born in a village named Alsimby in Parridge, Topcliffe, near Thirsk. Now, I haven't seen the exact date anywhere, just the year, um, but she was one of multiple children. It, we may not ever get an exact date. Now, she was in trouble for thieving from early on. According to the Sabine Gould book, she stole a pair of shoes at the age of five, which little children often take things, but she hid them for months in the barn and then pulled them out and pretended like she had just found them. Now, that's a pretty long game for most kids. Her parents were poor farmers, and as I said, she had numerous siblings. So at the age of 13, time to get a job. She went to work as a servant. She was supposed to be very intelligent and had actually received a decent education for her station and her gender. She could read and write and do maths. I found sources that indicate her family might have all been on the shady side and that her, quote, want of moral principle had never been instilled into her by the parents. But she didn't last long as a servant before she was fired for stealing. This became a pattern for Mary. She would find work, but she never held a job for long because her grifter nature would just rise up. Quote Baron Gould, she was a compulsive liar, thief, fraudster, and confidence trickster. She was said to be a gifted actress, and her calling card, what she did best, was convincing others that she had supernatural powers. She had to be good because she worked as a domestic servant and given her age, she was right at the bottom of the power structure. She, uh, she scrubbed and sewed and probably worked from dawn to dusk and beyond. Now, young girls were expected to work that way until marriage. I can't blame her for not loving the life. And she's probably, in each of these instances, leaving without references. And that would make it difficult for her to get another job. But she managed multiple times, which just shows she had a gift for the con. And probably a strong natural charisma. She was also extraordinarily lucky and that she managed to avoid having any sort of charges filed on her. In 1723, a law was passed called the Black Act. This law created over 200 capital crimes and others with more severe penalties. But you can only run a con in the same location for so long. At the age of 20, which would have put us in 1788, Mary ran away from Thirsk and went to York, which was a much larger town, where she found a job as a dress maker. Again, she had to have used her charm to get that position because she didn't have any real skill. Now, that only lasted a year before she was again on the run from the law. This time, she left York and went to Leeds, which was a much larger place than York. Leeds was a rapidly growing city with mills and factories, and it was a good place to get lost. There, she again went to work for a dressmaker, but she wasn't particularly skilled at it. I mean, she hadn't had that much training, 
so she could only work for lower class clients. Now she made some cash on the side telling fortunes and that she was good at. So her dress making clients were mostly servant girls, but they worked for ladies who could play handsomely for her side hustle. She did that for about four years and then she married John Bateman. Now, Mary Harker was now Mary Bateman. It seemed that John Bateman had no idea what his new wife was like at first. They married after only knowing each other for three weeks, but they seemed to have had a lot in common. He was from Thursk and she had lived there. John was a wheelwright, meaning that he makes or repairs wooden wheels. But within months, they had to move from their lodgings after Mary stole from another lodger. She broke into the man's locked belongings and stole his watch, cash, and silver spoons. She was caught, but she returned the property and no charges were pressed, but they had to move again. Now, Mary was making pretty good money at that time with her dressmaking and with her side hustle. I mean, relatively speaking for their station, but she was jealous of the fine ladies that she worked for. She saw all the clothes and the nice things and so she started a new scam. Now it was common in this time for things to be sold on credit. So she would go into shops and claim to be buying for another person. In one instance, she claimed to be a buyer for a Miss Stevenson, for Miss Stevenson's draper shop. And she took away three samples of silk fabrics for inspection. She brought two back and then claimed that Miss Stevenson wished to purchase the third and they should put it on her account. Perfectly normal. Of course, there was no Miss Stevenson and no one came to pay. And she kept running the scam until the shopkeepers were all wise to her. Each time she got caught, she would cry and apologize. And again, no charges were ever filed. In 1796, there was a fire in Leeds at the flax mill. And it was a devastating fire. People died. Many more were injured. Mary set about to do good works which means she was about to steal from some people. She collected money and items like bedding and sheets for the victims. She went around to well-known charitable persons and collected whatever she could from them. But of course, once a con, always a con, she kept the stuff. All the bedding ended up in a pawn shop and the money went in her pocket. She ran a similar scam going door to door, claiming to be a nurse from the infirmary and saying that she needed old linens for wound dressings. And then anything that was donated to her, she turned around and sold them. Now things finally were getting a little testy in Leeds. So John joined the supplemental militia to get him and Mary out of there for a while. Supplemental militia in England was sort of like our National Guard in the U.S. They were a domestic militia and they were often used to do things like protect coastline areas that were vulnerable to invasion. This opened Mary to, according to Stevens, a whole new sphere of opportunity because as the militia traveled, the militia members and their wives would interact with the local townsfolk in all these little villages along the coast and then move on, which sounds great if you're a con artist. Now, three years later, John quit the supplementals and the family went back to Leeds. I say family because they already had several children by this point. Mary began expanding her fortune telling business. She's now openly advertising that she could predict and control the future and remove spells. 
She sold charms and love spells. She convinced people that she could heal them. And we are past the big witch hunting days here. Um, the heyday of witch hunting was really 1450 to 1750. So just before Mary's life. So by now, this sort of business isn't unusual, especially among the working classes. There was a lot of superstition and local witches and witch women were common. There were several in York and Mary probably learned some tricks there. There was a woman called Old Nan who told fortunes with, according to Stevens, I, I, I'm just going to give it to you the way she says it, with her pet guinea pig and half a pack of dirty playing cards. I really want to see that one done. And then Hannah Green was known as the Ling Bob Witch, and she read leaves. Now, they were more benign than Mary, who became extremely predatory. Mary's specialty was the removal of evil curses or even the prevention of them. To up her cred, Mary invents a woman named Mrs. Moore. Now, this Mrs. Moore is supposedly the seventh child of a seventh child. And seven was a magical number back then, and superstition held that the seventh child of a seventh child was either um, magic or evil. But she was supposedly the source of Mary's power, and Mary was basically her deputy. At least, that's what Mary would tell people. Now, Mary was known to work with accomplices, of course, but there's no evidence that Mrs. Moore ever existed outside of Mary's brain. Mary convinced a woman named Mrs. Greenwood that her husband was in jail, but that Mrs. Moore could get him out. Mary said that there were four guards watching Mr. Greenwood, and Mrs. Greenwood would need to get together four pieces of leather, four pieces of blotting paper, four brass screws, and four, four pieces of gold to make an effective charm. And it had to be done by nightfall or he would die. So Mrs. Greenwood gives Mary all the money to get her husband out. Mary takes the money, supposedly to Mrs. Moore, to make the charms. And sure enough, that night the husband comes home and Mrs. Greenwood is thrilled. Until she learns that Mr. Greenwood was never in jail. Now, there's another story that she ran the same con on a woman and said that Mrs. Moore said the husband was in danger of committing suicide while incarcerated and that she needed pieces of leather and four brass screws to, quote, screw down the guards and that Mrs. Moore could do this for four gold pieces. The woman said that she didn't have four gold pieces and Mary suggested to the woman she should just steal some. Know your audience, Mary. This startled the poor woman who decided against taking Mrs. Moore's. Another of Mary's victims was Mrs. Stead. Mary convinced this poor woman of all sorts of things. Now, Mr. Stead was a soldier and Mary told Mrs. Stead that he was thinking about having an affair. But Mrs. Moore knew how to stop that. Mrs. Stead gave her a bunch of money, and in return, she was told to place coals in front of the door of the woman Mr. Stead allegedly wanted to have an affair with. Then she lit the coals on fire, and this, quote, consumed his passion. Well, she did this, and you know what? He didn't have an affair. Crisis averted. Mary kept convincing poor Mrs. Stead of all sorts of terrible things that were about to happen and then having the woman pay Mary to keep the bad things away. She convinced Mrs. Stead that her father-in-law wanted to murder her, 
that her daughter, who was only eight at the time, would become pregnant at 14 and take her own life, or that in the alternative, she would be murdered by the baby's father, and the daughter needed a silver bracelet to keep herself safe. So she had to give Mary silver. Of course, Mary took the silver, quote, to Mrs. Moore, came back with a bracelet that Mrs. Dead put on the daughter that was later found out to be pewter. Eventually, she gave up all her money and possessions trying to keep her family safe, and then Mrs. Stead attempted to drown herself. Fortunately, she was rescued, but Mary ran this scam in just various forms. Fair to say Mary wasn't exactly beloved by everyone, she got into some serious trouble in 1793. People were clamoring for money back or they would report her as a fraud. What to do? Well, there is no one safe from Mary's charms. Mary convinced John that she had received a letter that his father was deathly ill back in Thirst. Now his father was the town crier and was very well known. She brought John this letter about his father's illness. So he goes rushing off to Thursk, which is about a 30-hour trip to tend his father, only to discover that dad was doing just fine. John comes back home and finds out that Mary has sold all of his clothes and all of their furniture to pay off the angry victims. Now, mostly John just turned a blind eye to her behavior. He had to know what she was, but they frequently bought a nicer house and would furnish it with all of her ill-gotten gains. Um, they would take in lodgers who frequently complained they had money missing. So he was definitely benefiting from his wife's scams. Mary was always on the make. She once witnessed a neighbor request a leg of mutton from the butcher. She waited on a bridge that she knew the butcher's delivery boy would have to cross. When she spotted him, she leapt out and pretended to be the neighbor's servant. And she yelled at the boy, saying he was taking too long and the master was hungry. She took the mutton and said she would take it back to the master herself and even cuffed the boy, poor boy on his ear for his troubles. So she takes it home. Dinner time comes. This poor man is still waiting for his meat. So he finally goes to the butcher to ask, and he's told that his servant took it from the boy. So he talks to them some more, and from the description, he figures it out. Goes over to Mary's house, only to find that she is roasting his mutton for dinner. So there's a verbal scuffle. She says she's sorry, promises that she will pay for the mutton, and he goes away. So once away, once again, she gets away with it. Now, her scams get darker and darker. Soon, people would start dying. Now, Mrs. Moore was not Mary's only fictional accomplice. Enter Miss Blythe, a new creation who could read the stars and save people from disaster if only they followed her directions and took the potions offered to them. In 1803, Mary makes friends with some Quaker women named Kitchen. There were a pair of unmarried sisters who kept a draper's shop in Leeds near St. Peter's Square. She becomes a close friend and a confidant of theirs, even does some work in their shop. One of the sisters becomes ill. We don't know if this was a genuine illness or if Mary sort of helped the illness along. Mary procured some medicine for her friend straight from her 
other friend, Miss Blythe, and she begins nursing Miss Kitchens. That woman was dead within a week. Now, that poor woman's mother comes quickly to nurse her daughter, finds that she's dead, and in short order, both the mother and the other sister, who had both been perfectly healthy, but you were dosed with Mary by the special medication just as a precaution, they were dead too. Officially, the cause of death was cholera, although the symptoms were also consistent with arsenic poisoning. And a local doctor was convinced of poison. He was the last person to see one of the kitchens alive, and he wanted to conduct an autopsy, but at the time had to be consented to by someone from the family, and there wasn't anyone left in the family there to authorize it, so they were all buried. Also, people were afraid that the women carried a pestilence of some sort. Mary would go around while the women were sick, telling everyone that there was a plague in the house, so no one else dared go there, only Mary. She would go there, feed them, attend them, dose them with medicine, and at the time of the women's death, the house was padlocked and people were afraid to go in. But there were creditors, and there were items to sell off in the draper shop, so finally they insisted the lock be cut off so they could retrieve all of the items remaining to be sold from this fully stocked store and house and pay their debts because there had been no remaining family to attend to such matters. But once they get inside, they find the place has been stripped of every item of value. And shortly after this, Mary and John simply move away, even though the doctor is convinced the kitchens were poisoned. So how does Mary keep moving around and not getting caught? Well, it's important to remember that this is a time of war and change and extraordinary upheaval. In 1804, the Napoleonic Wars start. The United States is a baby country during this. The American Revolution occurs early in Mary's lifetime. And throughout her life, um, this former colony is still finding its way. The American Revolution was an extremely expensive war and really put England in a bind. And the nation is already embroiled in a controversy that's going to rip it apart over the next half of the century, slavery. The abolition movement has begun in the U.S. All the northern states had abolished slavery by 1805. Louisiana Purchase is going to double the land mass of the United States during this time. Um, Lewis and Clark set out to explore this new territory. And that same year, Aaron Burr shoots Alexander Hamilton. So that's for all you Hamilton heads. Um, what else is going on in the world then? Haiti gains independence from France and becomes the first black republic, having the only successful slave revolt ever. Russia's involved in war. They invade Finland and just tell them, by the way, you're part of Russia now. There's war there. This is the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So the entire world is being transformed. People have become increasingly mobile, moving from villages into um, the larger towns, looking for work, moving back out. Um, they're living in tenement slums. So things are really, really drastically changing. Now, Mrs. Stead, the woman who tried to drown herself, wasn't the only person completely ruined by Mary. She had a neighbor who died, leaving a widow and four children behind. 
Now, this widow was actually the stepmother of the four kids. Mary convinces the woman that the 15-year-old son was going to take all the property the family owned and make off with it. So she convinces the widow that she should sell all the property herself and give the money to Mary to hold in trust for the young children. And the woman does it and leaves to go back where she was from, which Mary had known she was going to do. So, of course, Mary then sends the poor children off to the workhouse where they are likely to die, and she keeps the cash. Mary convinces another woman named Mrs. Cooper that her husband is about to run off and take all their property with them. But she generously offers to hold all of Mrs. Cooper's property for her so that Mr. Cooper couldn't run off with it. You see where this is going. They moved all the property over to Mary's house. Mary immediately takes it all to a pawnbroker and then she runs off with the money. Now, when we get to 1806, Mary gets involved in one of her most interesting and infamous scams. She decides to set up her own religious cult. Religious tolerance was growing in England, and this allowed for more alternative religions, including a great deal of interest in prophets and spiritualism, now, this movement's going to hit its zenith in the Victorian era. Mary attended some meetings, allegedly, of a woman who was known as Joanna Southcott, and her followers were called Southcottian. So, Joanna Southcott would transcribe her own writings, and she convinced about 100,000 folks that she was going to imminently give birth to the next savior. Now, Joanna was a 64-year-old virgin. Instead, um, spoiler alert, she dies in 1814 without having given birth. But Mary's not going to live that long. Now, Joanna's devotees would be what she called sealed in the word of God. And they would be given a token to show this. Mary would go to the Southcottian meetings and was likely scoping out a possible scam. She becomes famous for a novel bit of religious trickery when she has a vision and when her hen, remember I told you it was going to be about a prophet hen of Leeds, that's Mary's hen, she begins laying eggs with the words Christ is coming with actually Christ misspelled written on each one of the eggs. Now, Mary claims she had a vision that her hen would lay 14 of these special eggs and that the very last one would herald the beginning of the apocalypse. She charged a penny a person to see this miracle. And she was making quite a bit of coin before a local doctor spied on Mary and found that she was etching the words on eggs herself with a vinegar solution and then popping them back into the poor hen's oviduct, where they would again be, quote, freshly laid, which doesn't sound comfortable at all. So, you can add crimes against poultry to our growing list. Now, this doctor outed Mary. People stopped coming to see the prophet hen, but she wasn't punished in any way. In fact, she sold the hen to a hopeful neighbor. But after there were no more special eggs, the poor hen just ended up in that neighbor's stew pot. Greetings, 
this is not an ad break because I'm not sponsored. Instead of listener discounts for fancy linens or a meal kit, you get a word of the week. This week's word, scalawag. When you think of scalawag, you're probably thinking of scoundrel or rascal, but the history of the word is much more interesting. Scalawag was a slang term for poor, scrawny livestock, but in the post-Civil War South, it took on a new meaning. Reconstruction of the Union was accomplished by three groups working together. The freedmen, who were formerly enslaved people, the carpetbaggers. These were white northerners who came south and were portrayed in the media as opportunists carrying their cheap luggage. And the scalawags, who were white southerners who had supported the Union and abolition. Now, these scalawags were mostly small farmers, merchants, artisans, people who hadn't heavily been invested in the business of oppression. Scalawags were considered the lowest of the low by other Southerners. A Mississippi newspaper gives this pointed description, quote, the carpet bagger is a northern thief who comes south to plunder every white man who is a gentleman of any property or respectability and get all the offices he can. The scalawag is a southern born scoundrel who will do all the carpet bagger will and besides murder the carpet bagger for the gutta percha ring his sister gave him when he left home. The Times, 8th of October, 1868. Bonus word, gutta percha, because I had to Google it. It's some type of tree that makes a resin that hardens and you can make things out of it like jewelry. And now, back to your regularly scheduled witch. In 1806, that's the same year as the Prophet Hen scam, Mary has a couple of new customers. They are William and Rebecca Perigo. Rebecca has been having chest pains or what is described as palpitations. And you know what that means? Yep, she's cursed. Incredibly, the couple goes to see a doctor who agrees with them that she is cursed. Now, fortunately, their niece knows a woman who is supposed to be great at lifting curses. And that is how they come to Mary for help. Mary asks for a garment and sends it off to her good friend, Miss Blythe. Miss Blythe tells Mary to tell the Perigos that she is to sew money into the bed. Also, they need to send four golden guineas to Miss Blythe for the special money which she is going to enchant and then they will sew it into the bed. This is how Miss Blythe's charms work. There are various amounts of money that is taken to Miss Blythe, who then charms the money, puts it into silk bags, which Mary returns with, meaning they're not actually seeing the money again because it's in those silk bags, which can't be opened. So the people will then sew the bags into the bed as instructed. And the Perigos are told that theirs must remain for 18 months. Now, Rebecca's always been relatively healthy, other than these mysterious palpitations, and she's only 46. Mary has a sort of accomplice in all of this named Winifred Bonds. 
Winifred's job was to take notes and run errands for Mary. She was a really good choice for this because she totally believed in Mary's supernatural powers and because she could not read. So she would take these notes back and forth between Mary and the Perigos. Uh, each note instructed the Perigos to burn it after reading so that the evil spirits won't know what Miss Blythe is up to. Because apparently they couldn't read it until that time. I don't know. Doesn't make sense to me either. But put a pen in the Perigos because we will come back to them. Now, during this time, Mary finds herself saddled with family. One of her brothers has come to live with her and his wife. He is hiding out from the Royal Navy because he's a deserter. If he's found, he would face hanging. The British Navy was infamous for its floggings and harsh punishment. Mary gets fed up with having two extra people, so she comes up with a plan. She gives the wife a letter that her father is dying in Newcastle, and she must come at once if she wants a chance to say goodbye. Sounds familiar? Again, it works, and the wife rushes to the side of her perfectly healthy father. While she's gone, Mary starts telling her brother that the wife is unfaithful, that she has run up a lot of debts in his name. Now, there are debts run up in the brother's name, but who do you think ran them up? Anyway, Mary instructs him to write the wife and tell her not to come back. He does, but the wife comes back anyway. Brother and his wife talk, and she convinces him that nothing Mary said was true. But before they can depart, they discover that Mary has emptied their traveling trunks of all their possessions. They're furious, but Mary gets rid of them by just going to the local magistrate and informing on her brother. So brother and wife have to run away from Mary with nothing. But Mary still isn't done. She sends a letter to her poor elderly mother claiming that brother has been arrested and Mary needs 10 pounds to get him out. So mom sent the money, even though it was a financial hardship. Mary and John have to move away again. In 1807, they move to another place in Leeds. While they're there, there is a poisoning incident involving a family of five and a cake laced with arsenic. Now the family survives, but Mary is blamed. It's not clear why or what her motive was, but suspicion rested on Mary, and she and John move yet again. This brings us to 1808. Mary and John are once again living close to the flax mill, the very same flax mill where she had run the scam uh, after the fire. They have a neighbor, a family named Snowden. Now, they convinced the family that their daughter is in danger of being drowned, but that Miss Blythe, who could read the stars, said that if the family only handed over a silver watch and 12 guineas, that the daughter could be saved. So the family does this, and the daughter doesn't drown. Amazing! Well, Mary told the family they had to sew the guineas into the bed along with the watch and says that uh, she puts them in the silk purses and that the family could later retrieve the items after the charm is done working. She then tells the family that they need to move somewhere far away from Mary out of Leeds. If they don't move, their daughter is going to become a sex worker, uh, which is not the term she used. But she also tells them they need to go immediately and leave behind most of their property but they could just leave her their key and she would watch over their items for them. So the family goes away, but they start thinking about that watch and all that money sewed into their bed and they could really use that money. So they write to Mary and say they would like to come get their items. She writes back, this is a terrible idea because the charms haven't been there long enough. 
But if they really want those items, Miss Blythe would prepare a special dose of medicine that would protect the family from the evil curse stalking them. So it's arranged that this is going to happen on October of 1808. She would send the powder for them to take and they must do all of that before they could come pick up their items. It's likely they would have never survived that powder and would have been seen to have killed themselves, leaving Mary to then dispose of their property that was left behind. But before then, before October, uh, Mary's going to be dead, and the publicity of her trial and execution is going to save the Snowden family from the fate of Rebecca Perigo. So put a pen in the Snowdens for a moment, because we are back to Rebecca and William. Remember them? Miss Blythe continues sending the Perigos demands in order to work on that pesky curse. They receive a note via Mary's courier, Winifred Bond, every two weeks. And these notes tell them to pay Miss Blythe money, china, silver, clothing, tea, sugar, food, alcohol. They're even told to buy her a new bed. Because she said that the spirits plaguing Rebecca had come to torment her and the only cure was a new bed. This continues until Mary has pretty much bled the Perigos dry. And we are getting close to the 18-month mark. Remember, she told them that the items only had to stay in the bed for 18 months. And all along, she has been giving them little silk purses to keep sewing into the bedding. And now it's getting close to the time when they're going to open them. So the Perigos receive a new note with a warning from Miss Blythe. Quote, my dear friends, I am sorry to tell you, you will take an illness in the month of May next, either the one or both, but I think both, but the works of God must have its course, end quote. Miss Blythe had a solution. She was going to send some special powders to Mary and some special magical honey. The powders are to be mixed into pudding along with the honey. No one else can eat this magical food, and if they call for a doctor upon becoming ill, they will die. Mary starts giving them the powders, and they put them in the pudding. Rebecca eats it, but William couldn't choke down more than a mouthful before he becomes extremely ill. Rebecca is also very ill, but she just keeps dosing herself with the honey per Miss Blythe's instructions. And she continues getting worse and finally suffers a horrible, torturous death a few months later in 1807. A neighbor is suspicious and feeds some of the pudding to a cat, which quickly died. William talks to another doctor named Mr. Chorley, who tests out the portions by feeding them to a dog, which quickly died. Like, ease off the animals here. But no autopsy was ever ordered, although Mr. Chorley did do a necropsy on the dog. As for William Perigo, he still keeps paying Mary for another year. At one point, he even took the honey to Mary and asked if there was something wrong with it. She yelled at him and said that she would, quote, lick it up if that would satisfy him. For him, that's enough. But now Mary has a problem because both of the Perigos needed to die. She offers to make William various other cures, but he keeps saying he doesn't need them. She keeps him frightened with talk of Rebecca rising from her grave and harming him. So he just keeps paying Mary the money. Finally, in 1808, William really needs the cash. So he goes to the bed and takes out the special money notes that had been sewn into the mattress 
and he finds that they're just paper. And now he realizes, I've been duped. I don't like to victim shame. And it's important to note that she duped a lot of people and was clearly good at convincing them. I mean, the man also had a doctor who agreed that Rebecca was cursed. But it really took William a long time to to figure this out. And then he tells Mary that he has opened the silk purses and she begs him to let her explain. She sets up a private meeting next to a canal the following morning. William arrives, but he was not making the same old mistakes now. He took two constables with him. Mary's arrested and she has a bottle of poisonous liquid in her pocket containing arsenic. It's likely she didn't intend to let William leave alive and would have tried to convince him to have ingested the liquid. In the alternative, he might have found himself floating in the canal. Now, the police who arrest Mary search her home and they find poisons there. They find mercury chloride as well as arsenic. Mary plays dumb, but they find a lot of property belonging to her various victims. The property of the Quaker sisters, the kitchens, is found in her possession, along with items that William and Rebecca had sent Miss Blythe for payment, including the bed. All of this is making news in October 22nd, 1808. Mr. Snowden overhears a discussion of Mary's crimes. He runs home and tells his wife, and they read an article about the Perigos And it sounds like just what happened to them. They go back to their old house, cut open the bedding, and sure enough, neither the watch nor the guineas are in there. It's only paper and a lump of coal. Also, everything of value from their house is gone. They report Mary, and sure enough, more items belonging to the Snowdens are found by the constables in the Bateman home. Mary stays in the York Castle Jail until the beginning of 1809. This is when the Aziz courts were heard. Court only happened a couple times a year because the magistrates had to ride location to location. John Bateman was also arrested. It's hard to argue with a house full of other people's possessions, and he was certainly living off the proceeds. Not to mention, he had gone to pick up the infamous bed from the Perigos and was now sleeping in it. But somehow, his case was either dismissed or he was acquitted as an accomplice. The record isn't clear, but he was released. 1809, March, Mary goes on trial. The trial lasted a whole 11 hours, and the jury found her guilty. The evidence, when taken as a whole, seems pretty overwhelming, but at the time, the accused wasn't allowed to testify on their own behalf, and only the wealthy had defense counsel. Mary did not. The only evidence heard then was the evidence against her. The courtroom was packed and sentiment was running high against her. Winifred Bond testified against Mary, as did a long list of neighbors, doctors, including Mr. Chorley, the one who had uh, fed poison to the dog to see what happened, and even a boy who had gone to buy arsenic with Mary's son. No surprise that at that time, Mary was then sentenced to death. However, she pled the belly, meaning she claimed to be pregnant. Pregnant women were not executed. After the baby was born, they often had their sentences pardoned or commuted to transportation or prison, but some unlucky ones still had their death sentence imposed. Mary was examined, found not to be pregnant, though she did have a small infant at the time. 
the judge pronounced sentence, quote, the sentence of the law is, and the court doth award it, that you shall be taken to the place from whence you came, and from thence on Monday next to the place of execution, there to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body shall be given to the surgeons for dissection and anatomized. And may God have mercy upon your soul. Dissection was mandatory as part of the 1752 Murder Act. People had a real horror of dissection back then. The churches viewed resurrection of the body as a physical act. And the body needed to be intact or you couldn't be resurrected on Judgment Day. And you couldn't enter heaven if the body was desecrated. But medical schools needed corpses for dissection. So grave robbing was a real risk. Families would pay folks to guard newly buried remains of loved ones as a way to provide bodies and save the innocent from this horror. Hanged criminals had to be given over for dissection. Awaiting her execution, Mary wasn't the least bit remorseful while being held in jail. In fact, she continued her ways by conning another prisoner out of guineas with the old sew the money into your clothing scam. She convinced the girl that her lover would visit her if Mary made a charm from the money and the girl sewed it into her clothing. When the lover didn't come see her, the girl ripped open her bodice to discover that the, quote, coins sewed in there were missing. Now, May 20th, 1809, Mary was taken to be hanged. The hangings for all those condemned at the most recent assizes were scheduled at one time for a mass hanging, you know, efficiency. They're done in groups. Public hangings were supposed to be a deterrent, but they were more like a festival for people. There were food vendors and trinket and souvenir hawkers and more than a few pickpockets all working the crowds. Whole families would come. They would picnic for the day. Mary's execution was heavily attended thanks to all the publicity. Estimates have ranged everywhere from 5,000 to 25,000 spectators who had paid a couple pence each to enjoy the jugglers and for the titillating possibility that the Yorkshire witch would use her supernatural powers to vanish into thin air and cheat the hangman's noose. She was scheduled to hang with a man named Joseph Brown, who was convicted of killing his landlady and trying to kill her sister. The hangman of York was an infamous character. Because hangman was considered such a despicable job, it was usually done by a felon who had his death sentence commuted for rendering the service. William Mutton Curry was just such a man. He was a convicted sheep rustler, hence the name, and was infamous for being rip-roaring drunk while carrying out his duties. On one occasion, he was too drunk to get the rope over the condemned's head and had to be helped. On another occasion, he was so intoxicated that he actually fell through the trapdoor himself. Nevertheless, he held his post for almost 30 years. Mary was hanged on May 20th, 1809. She did not vanish her body. It was, in fact, taken for dissection. People paid three pence to come and view her corpse, some touching it for luck. And then she was dissected, and strips of her skin were tanned into leather and sold as magic charms. Her skeleton was stripped of flesh and put on display. It actually hung 
in the Thackray Medical Museum until 2015, and it was given then to Leeds University, where it remains in storage there. Her skin was also used to bind several books, at least one allegedly owned by George IV. And that's the story of the Yorkshire Witch. Thank you for taking this ride with me. I know it's been a little bit rough, but I'm going to keep uh, learning and growing. I hope you will stick around. Next week, I'm going to tell you the story of the Coffin King of Korea. If you are of a little bit more morbid bent, which no judgment, um, I have photographs on my Pinterest of all things Mary Bateman, some wood cuttings. There are some uh, pictures from the covers of the books, including a famous drawing of her holding out one of the infamous prophet hen of Leeds eggs and another of her allegedly mixing up her por- her potion. Also photographs of Mary's skeleton hanging in the museum and a picture of a cup that was made from the skin of Mary Bateman. So if those interest you, my Pinterest is at Marguerite Says. If you want to talk to me, my email is MargueriteWrites at gmail.com. I created a Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast not a group, just a page to kind of update when I have new episodes dropping. But if enough people want to talk about the cases, I would create a group. Uh, I also have a uh, Instagram, The Scalawags Podcast. And I just want to give some, some thank yous. These stories don't happen in a vacuum. Um, it took some encouragement and some help from other podcasters for me to even get these out there. So I would like to send some special shout outs to Shay and Aaron from All Crime No Cattle, Vince and Erica from Gone Cold, uh, Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime, Julia Ortega of Women Behind the Veil, and some extra love to the Stacys and the Gigi's. Um, you know who you are. And to DL and AJ, you also knew who you are. I want to give a shout out to Lisa DeVici for the amazing cover art. I love Mr. Fancy Pants Cat. And until next time, remember, in the immortal words of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, well-behaved women seldom make history. So get out there and make some history of your own. <laughs>